It's Tuesday. You know what that means. It's time for the best and brightest moment of your week. It's time for that show you love and that show that you seek. It's time for nonsense. 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 The show. The best damn show you know. The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Under 17, not admitted without parent. of destiny was released it was a bomb and all the critics said that the d was done the sun had set and the chapter had closed but one thing no one thought about was the d would rise again just like the phoenix will fucking rise again that's right, the Phoenix will rise again, y'all. Cause the fiery heart of a champion cannot be quelched by a failure or an embarrassment, no way, no. And the critics all agreed it was a stinky pile of cheese, but that does not mean that our hearts are not strong. Just like the Phoenix will fucking rise again, yeah. That's how the Phoenix will rise again. Yeah. 
gentlemen, welcome to Nonsense the Show, episode 313. That's season three, episode 13. Um, obviously, this season hasn't gone as planned, but I appreciate y'all sticking with me. Glad to be here. Um, I have tentatively titled this episode of Nonsense the Show. Look at the fucking diction, bitches. You wouldn't know I've been drinking for like two hours. Um, I have tentatively titled this episode of Nonsense the Show, uh, A Complicated Tale. Um, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. I'm going to do a little bit of rambling. The music selection, as you can already tell, we started it off with the D, Tenacious D with Rise of the Phoenix. The music selection was actually the hardest part of this episode for me. Um, I just couldn't come up with a theme or kind of decide what I wanted, and so I, I went a little random with it. I made a last-minute change to Tenacious D because I was trying to pick an, uh, 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 an energetic song that would motivate me, make me feel good, and uh, sure enough, it did it. I broke a little sweat while that song was going on. I hope you did, too. <sighs> Let me just catch my breath here. Let's just breathe it out for a minute. Okay, everybody, with me. Okay, are you ready? You can do this wherever you are. Keep your eyes open if you're driving, but whatever else you're doing, just take a deep breath in. One, two, three. <sighs> And then breathe it out. There we go. Now we feel better. Sip a rum for all you listen to Nonsense the Show, episode 313. For those of you that don't know, my name is Captain Nick. Tonight on Nonsense the Show, um, we're going to start the show off by me just kind of talking about some shit that's going on. I wrote three categories down uh, just to show you where my head's at these days. Um, uh, the, the, this segment is going to be called what's up. Cause it's just going to be me telling you what's up. And the, the three words I wrote down when I was kind of brainstorming this were life TV shows and thoughts. And that tells you a lot about what I've been doing with my time lately. <laughs> There's some subheadings. Don't worry. There's some content in there. Um, so we're going to talk about just some shit that's going on. I'm going to ramble for a little bit. I'm going to use y'all as my personal therapist. Feel free to share your thoughts. Beard and bones on the Instagram beard and bones at gmail.com. B-E-A-R-D, the letter N, B-O-N-E-S. I don't know why I keep doing this. None of you ever fucking write to me about it, but um, there's like a handful of you that do that will text me occasionally about the show, and I fucking love you guys for that because it's really weird talking into the void all the time. Um, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Sip a rum. It's going to be that kind of show, guys. <laughs> okay. Um I'm going to give you an update on what's going on in life. I'm going to ramble for a bit. We're going to listen to a song. Then we're going to talk about the dancing plague of 1518, which is, well, it's exactly what it sounds like. One of history's mysteries is the dancing plague of 1518. Following that, we're going to do a song. Then we're going to do a new, uh, a new, uh, what do you call it? (sighs) Boy, oh boy. Sip of rum. (laughs) Every time I lose my train of thought, it's going to be sloppy tonight. Uh, after that, we are going to go into Mary Surratt, who, uh, this is a, a segment I'm calling side characters. This is one of those people that you've probably heard her name. I doubt you remember her name unless you're a history nerd like I am, but I'm going to tell you the story about Mary Surratt and her connection to president Abraham Lincoln. It's going to be an interesting story. And it is in fact a complicated tale. And then we're going to dive into Captain's Film Institute, entry number 48, a movie that I cannot believe was not already in the Captain's Film Institute. I thought this was one of the first 10 I did, quite frankly. I had to go back to my log and take a look. Um, we're going to talk about a 2008 film directed by a man called David Gordon Green, starring Seth Rogen, James Franco, Danny McBride, Craig Robinson, Rosie Perez, Amber Heard, Jolo Truglio, and Bill Hader. That's right, bitches. 
Pineapple Express is on the menu. <laughs> so it's going to be a weird show. It's going to be a fun show. Uh, settle in, strap in, motherfuckers. Um, let's do the damn thing. Alrighty then. Um, what's up? Let's start with life. Life tonight, as I'm recording this show, it's election night. Um, anybody who's been paying any attention to American politics in the last, I don't know, decade knows that it is just pants on head, batshit eating crazy. Um, that's all I'm going to say about it. I'm stressed about it. It's fine. You guys understand. Um, and then just life is hard. There's lots of stuff going on in life. Things are, things are complicated. Things are difficult. Things are stressful. Things are whatever. Um, so this show is a place that I come to get away from that and to feel good about life and to, you know, just tickle my uh, creative pickle, so to speak. I feel like I've made tickle pickle jokes a lot lately, and I'm not sure why that is. My brain's a little mushy. It's not a good thing. Oh, you're crazy. I know. That's exactly what I'm saying, Jerry. I'm fucking crazy. It's a weird situation, and I'm not really sure what, what to do about it. You know, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Wrong, sir. But wrong. What do you mean wrong? I'm not wrong. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I'll get over it. I'm just stressed. I'm a little, uh, a little uh, overthinking things. My brain's just kind of fried, you know, and, and I know lots of people are like that right now. It's not, you know, it's not like, uh, it's not like I'm alone. You know what I mean? That's what she said. But that doesn't even make sense. Sweet. Okay. Okay, I'm done with you. Okay? This is the funnest night ever. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, listen. For those of you that are new to nonsense, the show, those voices you heard are the ghosts that live in my house. Um, we're going to get to them in a minute. Um, Alan, I invited them back to the show just for you tonight. Okay? Has everyone gone nuts? Who the hell do you think you are? Okay, that's not fucking necessary. Okay, I'm trying to tell Alan that I brought you guys back for him because he mentioned that he missed you. He hadn't heard you in a while. Okay? Just fucking relax. I was just bullshitting. And you know this, man. Fair enough. Just shut up, okay? The ghosts that live in my house, ladies and gentlemen. Sip a rum for the ghosts that live in my house. Dang. <laughs> okay, be honest with me, and I actually want you guys to write to me about this. That's the dumbest bit ever, right? Nobody else laughs at that. Am I the only one that finds that funny? I'm pausing as if you guys are going to answer. You guys aren't going to answer even if I wait for a month. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. That's why I fucking said it. I think I got it. But just in case, tell me the whole thing again. I wasn't listening. I'm not going to do that. We're going to move on. We got shit to do. This aggression will not stand, man. It will stand because I can fucking mute you, okay? Stop it. If the people write to me and they want to hear more of you, we'll hear more of you. Otherwise, shut up. What's going on in life? Ladies and gentlemen, life is crazy. This show is a release from that. The music's going to be fun tonight. The stories are going to be a little wonky. Um, of course, I've... <laughs> <laughs> I pre-partied plenty, so I'm having a good time. I hope you are too. Um, I am, uh, you know, as life tends to do, I've been sort of lurching from one thing to the next. I don't really know where I'm going in life. Um, I'm still sort of rebuilding from, you know, what I had planned falling apart. And I, I don't really know what that's going to look like. And recently I was presented an opportunity to take a look at a, a place that sort of checks a lot of boxes for me. It's in a different part of Sonoma County. It's near uh, one of my very best friends um, and her future husband, who's a phenomenal person, and his family, who are great people. And it sort of reminds me of the street I grew up on, and it overlooks a creek. And 
it's a small place, which I'm looking forward to, and everything works and the windows opened, and <laughs> unlike where I currently live. Um, so, you know, I, I say all that to let you know that I'm going to be moving soon. I don't know if the ghosts are going to come with me. So um, you guys are going to have to, uh, you're going to have to write to me if you want the, if you want the ghost to stay, okay? This sort of thing ain't my bag, baby. I know it's not, but that's what I'm saying. I want people to write to me because I'm lonely and this is the way I'm going to do it, okay? That's great. Go ahead. Make your jokes, mister. Jokey. Why is me being lonely? Joke maker. No, me being lonely is not a joke. Fucking relax, okay? Thug life. Son of a bitch. That's a fucking great, great segue to our CFI segment. Um, so I'm going to be moving soon. I'm finalizing all the paperwork still. I got to, I got to make notifications to my current landlord. I got to start packing. I'm going to be selling and donating most of my furniture and kind of starting fresh. Um, I think it's time for a new chapter, you know? Um, I think, uh, it's just one of those situations where the new spot has a lot of opportunities for me and a lot of new stuff. And I think I need to get out of my comfort zone a little bit. And, and so this is the way I'm going to do it. So I'm moving soon. Get excited. It'll be fun. I told you it'll be fucking fun. Um, that's what's going on there. Life is complicated. We talked about that. Okay, good. Um, this show, I, I really love doing this show. I don't want to stop doing this show, but lately I've been sort of having trouble writing episodes. Sometimes it comes really easy and sometimes I really have to fight for it. And um, I wrote this episode about two, maybe three weeks ago. And then I was like, I couldn't find a third segment. I had the film, you know, I had the, the three that we've got. I had the, 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 the dancing plague. I had the, uh, the, the Mary Surratt. I had the film Institute, which I, you know, count as a separate thing. And then I need one more. I usually do four segments a show. And I just couldn't come up with one. And, and then I just wasn't motivated. There were other things that demanded my attention and my energy. And I'm sort of just like burnt out on things lately. Um, and uh, so I appreciate you guys being patient. I will get to 24 episodes in this season. And then I'll take a little break from it. And then I'll come on back and, and kind of revamp it and try to get some energy back into it. And maybe I'll start a new show. Who knows? If you've got ideas, let me know. I want to collaborate. Let me know. If you know anyone that wants me to record stuff with my beautiful, sexy, sultry voice, let me know. I will charge them money. They will pay me money, and I will record them gold. Um, I'm just rambling now at this point. TV shows. What have I been watching lately? I've been watching a couple stuff. I stumbled across a show on HBO called White Lotus. Um, it's a, I guess you would call it a dark comedy. I'm not really sure what I expected out of it. It was one that I didn't look into. I just saw it and went, play um, Steve Zahn was in it. I love Steve Zahn. Uh, the cast was great. The setting was great. It was very interesting. There were some laughs. It was a little bit depressing and kind of bleak. Nobody was really all that likable as a character. Um, but I found myself just watching it. I couldn't put it down. I was just, I was hooked. I binged it. Um, so I'm going to recommend you guys get on HBO. Check out White Lotus. The second season is starting. I think there are two or three episodes out. I'm letting those build up before I watch it. Um, but I'm very curious to kind of see what other people's read on White Lotus is. Um, I have also been watching, you know, lately I've been doing a lot of kind of comfort TV. And one of the shows that unexpectedly has become a comfort TV show for me, um, I don't expect it'll be a long-term one, but the short-term, is a show called Tacoma FD. It's made by a couple of the guys that did Super Troopers. It's basically Super Troopers in a firehouse. It's not brilliant television. It's not you know, it's, it's clearly very low budget. The acting is not always the best, but I really enjoy it. I like the characters. It's funny. Um, it's very low stakes in a world that feels like it's ending every day. Check out Tacoma FD. Um, and the other one that I finally sat down and really, and really churned through, um, I'd watched the first episode of Andor, the new Star Wars show. And I really liked it, but it didn't grab me. 
And I said, okay, I'm going to let it build and I'll come in and watch it and see how I feel. So I let a few episodes build up and then I sat down and I, I started watching and I'm fucking hooked. It, it's, it's sort of Star Wars, but not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a, a Cold War resistance heist movie set in the Star Wars universe. But like there's no lightsabers, there's no Jedis, there's no fucking Skywalkers, there's no Darth Vader. But there's a lot of like really creepy, intense Imperial shit. Um, the resistance stuff is really interesting and you really see sort of the human toll that that kind of thing takes. Um, I really enjoyed Andor. I think it's a really cool take on the Star Wars universe and it's one of those things that if they can keep doing shows like this, give me any kind of show you want but put it in the Star Wars universe universe, and I'm interested in it. I've not been impressed with what they've been doing outside of The Mandalorian, but this really got me. So check out Andor. Good shit. I think that's all the TV we'll talk about right now. Um what else? Uh, okay, here's a good one for you. Here's some low-stakes shit. <laughs> um, some of you, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, you will know that I have recently posted a couple of posts about my robes. Last year, I had bought at a thrift shop uh, this beautiful, like, red, um, long, you know, kind of lined robe from the 50s uh, by a company that I've tried to research, and even with my online sleuthing skills, I haven't been able to find much information on. They just There's just no info about them, but it's one of the most comfortable garments I've ever worn. I fucking love it. I feel so elegant when I'm wearing it in the house. Um, and so I found a, a company called Highway Robery, um, which is a fun play on words, and they make just cool robes out of sort of whatever leftover scraps of fabric they can find or like, uh, you know, leave behind stuff. So it's sort of environmentally friendly they're trying to go you know low waste um and i picked up one of their robes and it's sort of this purple flowery kind of deal and it's just like i don't know man there's something about these uh these pretty robes that makes me happy i get i get the hype now man so anytime i'm in my house i got one of these robes on and i feel really elegant and kind of snooty um and i'm just like cozy and the fabric feels good on my skin and um i don't know man check out some fucking fancy robes highway robbery or a couple other places, I'm sure. But if you find cool robes, let me know, especially if they're vintage and have cool patterns and shit. Send them my way. And then the other thing I wrote down here uh, in the last bit of this segment, I wrote down K-I-S-S. Now, the first thing when I read that is I think, man, it'd be nice to fucking get a little smooching on. But I'm not dating. I'm, I'm way out of the dating world for a while. <laughs> that did not go well last time. Um <laughs> But what I meant when I wrote that down was I've had some conversations with people and there's a lot of like real world problems going on, you know, in my, in my orbit. And what I find is that most of the problems that people in my life are facing have relatively simple solutions if people would just get out of their own fucking way. And like the people that I love are being affected by the choices or lack of choices from other people. And it's, it's just, it's one of those things where I keep finding myself, this overarching theme in my life is I look at something going on and I go, why don't we just do this the easy way? Why do we have to overcomplicate everything? So I just want to give you all the, the, this is the, the captain's word of advice. Ding, ding, ding. The captain's word of advice here tonight on Nonsense the Show. Episode 313 is keep it simple, stupid. Simplify shit. If you've got a problem, handle it at the lowest level possible. If you have a problem or an issue, start breaking it down until you get to the simplest component parts you can and then deal with those. If you're dealing with heavy, big, difficult to understand emotions, slow down. 
Break it down to its basic parts. Why do I feel this way? What is it that I'm feeling? Try to use small words with yourself. I know it sounds silly, but it fucking helps, okay? So, keep it simple, stupid. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the first segment of Nonsense the Show, episode 313. Clearly, it's going fucking great. Um, (laughs) uh, All right, what do we got here? What do we got here? Coming up next on the list, um, before we head into our segment about the dancing plague of 1518, I thought it would be helpful um, if we had a song about dancing. So um, this one might be controversial. I think there are people that don't like this song, but I love this song. So this is Lady Gaga with Just Dance. See y'all in about, uh, I don't know, four minutes, and we'll get on to the dancing plague. Oh, red wine.
Ladies and gentlemen, that was Lady Gaga with Just Dance. Um, that's a song that I like because um, it's fun and it makes me dance and sing along. And I remember fondly when the video came out. And um, I think the message of it is nice and it kind of fits in with what I was aiming for with the theme of this, the music on the show, which is like, just chill out, relax and have a good time. Everything's fucking stressful. Let's relax a little bit. Ladies and gentlemen, with that in mind, it is time to talk about the first actual written segment on our show tonight. Are you excited to not just hear me ramble? This is actual prepared words. I'm going to read off the screen. Ladies and gentlemen, and now for a History's Mysteries segment. This is the Dancing Plague of 1518, 25 minutes into the episode. (laughs) In the summer of 1518... The dancing plague in the Holy Roman city of Strasbourg saw some 400 people dance uncontrollably for weeks on end, leaving as many as 100 of them dead. On July 14, 1518, a woman named Frau Trophea from the city of Strasbourg in modern-day France left her house and began to dance. She kept going and going for hours until she finally collapsed, sweating and twitching on the ground. As if in a trance, She started dancing again the following day, and the next day after that, and the next day after that, seemingly unable to stop. Others soon started following suit, and she was eventually joined by some 400 other locals who danced uncontrollably alongside her for about two full months. No one knows what caused the townspeople to dance against their will, or why the dancing persisted for so long. But in the end, As many as 100 people died. Historians dubbed this bizarre and deadly event the Dancing Plague of 1518, and we're still sorting through its mysteries some 500 years later. Though the historical record of the Dancing Plague, also known as the Dancing Mania, is often spotty, surviving reports give us a window into this unusual epidemic. After the dancing plague commenced with Frau Trofea's fervent yet joyless marathon of movement, her body eventually succumbed to severe exhaustion that left her in a deep, deep sleep. But this cycle, much to the bewilderment of her husband and onlookers, repeated every day no matter how bloody and bruised her feet became. Unable to summon any rational explanation, the crowds of people who witnessed Trofea's dancing suspected it was the handiwork of the devil. She had sinned they said, and was therefore unable to resist the powers of the devil who had gained control over her body. But as quickly as some had condemned her, many townspeople began to believe that Trofea's uncontrollable movements were divine intervention. Locals in the area believed in the lore of St. Vitus, a Sicilian saint martyred in 303 AD who was said to curse sinners with uncontrollable dancing mania, if angered. After suffering several days of non-stop dancing and with no explanation for her uncontrollable urge, Trofea was brought to a shrine high up in the Vosges Mountains, possibly as an act of atonement for her purported sins. 
but it didn't stop the mania. Pardon me. The dancing plague swiftly took over the city. It was said that about 30 people quickly took her place and began dancing with mindless intensity in both public halls and private homes, unable to stop themselves, just like Frau Trofea. Eventually, reports say that as many as 400 people began dancing in the streets at the Dancing Plague's peak. Say that ten times fast. Dancing Plague's peak, Dancing Plague's peak, Dancing Plague's peak. Zipperum! For, alliter- mm, for alliteration and elocution. <laughs> the chaos continued for some two months, causing people to keel over and sometimes even perish from heart attacks, strokes, and exhaustion. One account claims that there were upwards of 15 deaths every day when the dancing plague reached its height. In the end, about 100 people may have died thanks to this bizarre epidemic. We've said that about 60 times. I did not proofread this article very well. I apologize. (laughs) However, skeptics of this outrageous tale have understandably questioned how exactly people could dance almost continuously for weeks on end. So what is the truth? Well... In order to investigate the plausibility of the Dancing Plague of 1518, it's important to start by sorting through what we know to be historical fact and what we know to be hearsay. Modern historians say there is enough literature surrounding the phenomenon to corroborate that it did actually happen. Experts first uncovered the Dancing Plague thanks to contemporaneous local records. Among them is an account written by the medieval physician Paraclesius, who visited Strasbourg eight years after the plague struck and chronicled it, in his opus, Paramirum. What's more, copious records of the plague appear in the city's archives. One section of these records describes the scene as such. There's been a strange epidemic lately going amongst the folk, so that many in their madness began dancing, which they kept up day and night without interruption until they fell unconscious. Many have died of it. Another chronicle, composed by the architect Daniel Specklin, that's still kept in the city archives, describes the course of events, noting that the city council came to the conclusion that the bizarre urge to dance was the result of, quote, overheated blood in the brain. In their madness, people kept up their dancing until they fell unconscious and many died. In a misguided attempt to cure the townspeople of the plague, the council imposed a counterintuitive solution. They encouraged victims to continue their dancing, perhaps in the hopes that people would inevitably tire out safely. The council provided guild halls for the people to dance in, enlisted musicians to provide accompaniment, and according to some sources, paid strong men to keep the dancers upright for as long as possible by lifting their exhausted bodies as they whirled around. And all that makes me think about is a, uh, an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia called The Gang Dances Their Asses Off. Maybe one of my favorites It was the first one I saw. After it became clear that the dancing plague wouldn't end anytime soon, the council employed the extreme opposite of their initial approach. They decided that infected people had been consumed by holy wrath, and so penance was enforced on the town along with the banning of music and dancing in public. According to city documents, the delirious dancers were eventually taken to a shrine dedicated to St. Vitus, located in a grotto on the hills of nearby town of Severn. There, the dancers' bloodied feet were placed into red shoes before they were led around a wooden figurine of the saint. Miraculously, the dancing finally came to an end after several weeks, but whether any of these measures helped and what caused the plague in the first place remained mysterious. 
So why did this dancing plague happen? What caused it? Five centuries later, historians are still unsure about what exactly caused the dancing plague of 1518. Modern explanations vary, though one claims that the dancers suffered effects of a psychotropic mold, known as ergot, which, gl- uh, which grows on damp stalks of rye and can produce a chemical similar to LSD. So one theory goes that they were tripping balls, and they had to boogie. But even though uh, ergotism, which some say caused the Salem witch trials as well, can bring on delusions and spasms, other symptoms of the condition include an extreme decrease in blood supply, which would have made it challenging for people to dance as hard and as long as they did. Offering another theory, historian John Waller posited that the dancing plague was simply a symptom of medieval mass hysteria. Waller, author of A Time to Dance, A Time to Die, uh, and the foremost expert on the subject of the Dancing Plague of 1518, believes mass hysteria brought on by horrific conditions in Strasbourg at the time, extreme poverty, disease, and starvation, we're supposed to be ignoring problems in the real world on this show, caused the townspeople to dance from the stress-induced psychosis. I've been doing a lot of dancing uh, leading up to this show. Hmm. He argued that this collective psychosis was possibly exacerbated by the supernatural beliefs common in the region, namely the lore surrounding St. Vitus himself and his dance-inducing powers. There had previously been at least ten other outbreaks of inexplicable dancing mania centuries before the events at Strasbourg took place. According to sociologist Robert Bartholomew, great name, these plagues could see dancers parading around naked, making obscene gestures and even fornicating in public or acting like barnyard animals. Dancers could also become violent towards observers if they did not join in. Now, when I read that paragraph, what comes to my mind is the fact that if you've got enough people together, I mean, a sufficient number to overwhelm a local police department, you could go behave like this in public. And as long as you sold it convincingly and everybody stuck to their guns, they couldn't do shit about it. Just a thought for any of you aspiring cult leaders out there. All of these examples of dancing mania took root in towns near the River Rhine, where the legend of St. Vitus was the strongest. Waller cited the theory of environment of belief proposed by U.S. anthropologist Erica Bergen-Yon. Uh, her she makes great beef, which argues that supposed spirit possessions occur primarily where supernatural ideas are taken seriously. This, in turn, encourages believers to enter a disassociative mental state in which their normal consciousness is disabled, causing them to carry out irrational physical acts. The cultural norm of believing in a higher power, Waller continued, made people susceptible to adopt extreme behaviors spurred on by the disassociative state of others. If the dancing mania really was a case of mass photogenic uh, correction, psychogenic illness, we can also see why it engulfed uh, so many people. Few acts could have been more conducive to triggering an all-out psychic experiment, uh, epidemic rather, than the counselor's decision to corral the dancers into the most public parts of the city. Their visibility ensured that other city folk were rendered susceptible as their minds dwelt on their own sins and the possibility that they might be next. If Waller's theory of a mass psychological illness does indeed explain the dancing plague, it's a prime and terrifying example of how the human mind and body can work together to create chaos. Beautiful, dancing, chaos. And this is Outcast.
You know, I feel like this song must have come out sometime around 2002. I remember listening to this song a lot, driving to like drama performances and practices in high school and shit. Love me some Outcast. What's up, big boy? What's up, Andre 3000? That's the whole world by Outcast featuring Killer Mike. Sip a rum for the OGs. Um, all right, ladies and gentlemen, let me go ahead and get myself situated here. Um, we'll get ourselves ready for our next segment. Um, there is the song I'm going to need. Okay, life is good. Everybody's happy. Excellent, ladies and gentlemen. Um, as I'm sure you can tell, I'm a little discombobulated tonight. Thank you for uh, sticking with me, having a good time. Coming up next, the first entry into a new segment here on Nonsense, the show. This is called Side Characters. And my intent with this segment is to find people that sort of were present at important events in our history but weren't necessarily the main focus or even the next focus. They're further down the list, but they were there, damn it. And we want to know their stories. So, starting off the side characters uh, segment here on Nonsense, the show, we're going to talk about Mary Surratt. Who is Mary Surratt, and why do you care? Sit tight, fair listener. I'm about to share. On mm. <laughs> It's a weird night. On July 7th, 1865, Mary Surratt and three other condemned prisoners were marched through the courtyard of the old Arsenal Penitentiary outside of Washington, D.C., surrounded by a crowd of over 1,000 people. They were escorted by General John F. Hartranft. That's a weird name to say. Hartranft. Each of the prisoners' wrists and ankles were bound. Their heads hung low as they approached the gallows. Surratt marched at the front of the procession wearing a black dress, black bonnet, and black veil. Too weak to walk on her own, two soldiers and priests supported her as she walked. The prisoners took their seats on the gallows. Surratt sat to the left of the others. The quote-unquote seat of honor for the execution. And then one of the other prisoners spoke up. Mrs. Surratt is innocent, he said. She doesn't deserve to die with the rest of us. Less than 20 minutes later, four lifeless bodies hung from the gallows. Lewis Powell, David Harold, George Atzerodt, and Mary Surratt. The co-conspirators of one John Wilkes Booth in the assassination of American President Abraham Lincoln. Well, most of them were. While Powell, Harold, and Atzerodt were most certainly involved in planning Lincoln's death, Mary Surratt's participation is much less clear. And for many Americans, the sight of her dead body hanging in distinct contrast to the men next to her was too much to bear. So who exactly was Mary Surratt, and why did her death lead to so much controversy? Good news, fair listener, I'm about to tell you. Born Mary Elizabeth Jenkins to a tobacco farmer and his wife in Maryland, Mary Surratt grew up in a slave-owning family. When she was 17, she married John Harrison Surratt, another farmer who uh, enslaved seven people of his own. Like many Maryland farmers who relied on slave labor, John Surratt openly favored Southern secession. 
After a fire burned down the Surratt's farm, reportedly set ablaze by a runaway slave, John and Mary opened a tavern in Clinton, Maryland, which also served as their home. Within a few years, however, John Surratt, an alcoholic, fell into heavy debt. Maryland was a pivotal state in the North-South conflict. Only 2% of voters favored Lincoln, yet the state remained part of the Union when the Civil War broke out. John and Mary Surratt's eldest son, Isaac, joined the Confederate Army, and their younger son, John Surratt Jr., began working for the Confederate Secret Service. The war also crippled uh, crippled John Sr. financially, plunging the Surratts into further debt. And then, in 1862, John Surratt died, leaving Mary alone and in dire straits. At 39, she decided to rent out the family's Maryland farm and tavern and moved with her two sons and her daughter, Anna, to a small townhouse that she had inherited in Washington, D.C., Mary converted the home's upper floor into a small boarding house, which she could rent out and make a modest living through. However, during her trial, Mary Surratt's boarding house ultimately proved to be the proverbial nail in her coffin. Her son John had become good friends with a prominent Southern actor, a man who went by the name of John Wilkes Booth, and the two would often meet up at the boarding house. In time, Mary's boarding house, located less than a mile down the street from the White House, became a safe house for Confederate rebel agents and spies. More importantly, it is where Booth and his co-conspirators formulated the plan to to kidnap Abraham Lincoln late in the Civil War. But that plan changed when the Union prevailed over the Confederacy in April of 1865. According to history, John Wilkes Booth's original plan had been to abduct, abduct Abraham Lincoln and transport him to Richmond, offering him in exchange for Confederate prisoners of war. While planning the kidnapping, Booth and John Surratt Jr. recruited more co-conspirators and hosted meetings at Mary Surratt's boarding house. They also stored guns and ammunition at her tavern in Maryland. But with the surrender of the Confederacy on April 9, 1865, Booth and his conspirators hastily changed their plan from kidnapping to the much, much more serious crime of assassination. The plan was that Booth would assassinate Lincoln, George Atzelrott would kill his vice president, Andrew Johnson, and Lewis Powell and David Harold would kill Secretary of State William H. Seward. Together, The group hoped to cripple the U.S. government just as it celebrated a massive victory. Five days later, only John Wilkes Booth was successful. Yet within hours of his assassination of Abraham Lincoln at Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865, District of Columbia police visited Mary Surratt at her boarding house. They explained that in addition to looking for Booth, they were also looking for her son John, who was suspected of assisting Powell and Harold in the attack on Seward. But while Booth fled to Surratt's Maryland Tavern to collect weapons before heading south into Virginia and ultimately being killed by Union soldiers, John fled to Canada. From there, he journeyed to Europe and posed as a Canadian citizen, joining the Papal Zouaves, a volunteer regiment set up to defend the Vatican during Italian unification. U.S. officials eventually caught up with him in Egypt, but John Surratt Jr. avoided the gallows. Unfortunately, 
the same could not be said for his mother. Historians describe Surratt's responses during her questioning as confident and arrogant. She denied having any prior knowledge of the assassination, though some historians argue that she did at least know about the plan to kidnap Lincoln. Still, it had been her boarding house where the meetings were held. On top of that, her Maryland tavern keeper, John Lloyd, claimed that Mary Surratt had told him the day of the assassination to keep guns ready for Booth and Harold, who were meant to rendezvous there after the killings. Combined, Lloyd's damning claim and Mary's status as the conspirator's landlord led to her arrest and placed her on trial alongside Atzelrot, Harold, and Powell. On May 12, 1865, Mary Surratt stood trial before a nine-man military tribunal rather than a civil court, according to the Journal of Abraham Lincoln Association. The tribune... uh, (laughs) Words are hard. (laughs) It's getting late in the show. You know shit's about to get a little weirder. Uh, The tribunal itself was controversial at the time, likely because the North and the South still strongly distrusted one another. Uh, But Surratt proclaimed her innocence throughout the proceedings. Several of her friends and priests defended her, and among her biggest supporters was, of course, her daughter Anna but other witness testimonies didn't paint Mary Surratt in a favorable light. One witness described her as devoted body and soul to the cause of the South. And of course, there was the testimony of John Lloyd, the man to whom she leased the Maryland Tavern, who told the tribunal of weapons that had been stored there for the conspirators. Reportedly, when Lloyd learned of Lincoln's assassination, he called out, Mrs. Surratt, that vile woman, she has ruined me. In the end, the tribunal ignored Mary Surratt's protestations of innocence. Not only was she convicted of helping the plot to assassination, helping to plot the assassination, but she was also sentenced to death by hanging. However, of the nine tribunal members, five suggested that President Andrew Johnson should commute Surratt's sentence to life in prison. Anna even pleaded on the front lawn of the White House, begging Johnson to commute her mother's sentence. Some accounts claim that Johnson never received the letter asking him to commute Surratt's sentence. Presumably, he didn't see Anna pleading on the White House lawn either. But others say he outright refused, saying, quote, She kept the nest that hatched the egg. Many people, including the hangman, had expected Andrew Johnson to commute Surratt's sentence at the last minute. Instead, he signed her execution order on July 5th. That same day, workers began constructing the gallows. Dressed in black, on July 7, 1865, Mary Surratt became the first woman to be hanged by the United States government. During the trial, the general public regarded Mary Surratt with contempt. A writer for the Chicago Tribune in attendance at the tribunal wrote of her, This miserable creature is looking stronger and apparently more reconciled. The vitriol was so intense that the, tri- uh, the, mm, <laughs> that the Tribune's editors seemed to be eagerly awaiting the capture and execution of John Surratt Jr. as well, writing one of them has been hanged and the other will be hanged when he gets his desserts. But after the execution, 
and especially after seeing the photo of her hanging at the gallows, which you can go see today on the internet anytime you like. Many Americans questioned whether the verdict had been just. Indeed, in the more than 150 years since, Mary Surratt's involvement in the assassination plot has repeatedly come into question. In the years immediately following Surratt's execution, capital punishment for women plummeted dramatically. Less than a year later, in April 1866, the Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional for citizens to be tried before military commissions, a ruling that ultimately saved John Surratt Jr.'s life. The Surratt House and Tavern still stands to this day as the oldest house in Clinton, Maryland, where it is being maintained by the Surratt Society as a museum and a historical landmark. However, Mary Surratt's boarding house in Washington, D.C. is a different story. While the building is still intact, it is now, as of the time of the writing of this article, a Chinese restaurant called Walk and Roll. (laughs) I wish I was joking. While Mary Surratt's legacy has lived on, history still has yet to decide her final verdict. What do you think of Mary Surratt and her involvement in the assassination plot of Abraham Lincoln? Write to me, Beard and Bones. You know where to find me. And now, ladies and gentlemen, leading into the final segment of our show tonight, 53 minutes into the episode, it is time for Captain's Film Institute entry number 48, a film I cannot believe has not been entered sooner, but don't worry, the time is now. But before we get to that, we need to do this. If you saw the trailer, if you know anything about this movie, you recognize this song. I'll tell you a story about this song when it finishes. Enjoy Paper Planes by M.I.A. If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name If you come around here, I'll make a more day I get one down in a second if you wait I fly like paper, get high like planes If you catch me at the border, I got visas in my name If you come around here, I'll make a more day I get one down in a second if you wait Sometimes I think sitting on trains Every step I get to, I'm clocking that game Everyone's a winner, we're making our fame Bonafide hustler
democracy Yeah, I got more records in the KGB So, uh, no funny business You already are Ladies and gentlemen, it was Paper Planes by MIA. And if you are listening at this point in the show and you heard a little hiccup in that song, that was just me screwing around with my phone and messing up the play uh, playback. Um, I want you to go ahead and text me or Instagram message me. I want you to tell me you spotted the screw up in Paper Planes. And uh, the code word is going to be you texting me. What is your favorite movie and why? If you do that. Mentioning that screw up in the song, I will Venmo you $5. No, you know what? I will Venmo you $10. That's how much I want to hear from you. Write to me about the screw up in the song. Tell me your favorite movie. Tell me why. I'll give you 10 bucks. It's that fucking easy. How could you say no? You can't, bitch. Just do it, okay? And while we're at it, patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. Throw me a couple of bucks, all right? Putting these shows together is hard work. You get an hour's worth of entertainment or more. We're just about in an hour right now. Um, and, uh, and, and you throw me a couple of dollars per episode. It's a beautiful thing. You only get charged when I produce content. Um, it's a win for everybody. So think about it. Coming up next, Captain's Film Institute, entry number 48. The Captain's Film Institute, of course, being my database of the finest movies the most enjoyable movies the most rewatchable movies the most captain pardon me the most captain nick movies in the history of film entry number 48 into the captain's film institute released in 2008 uh, directed by a man called david gordon green starring seth rogan james franco danny mcbride craig robinson rosie perez amber heard joe lotruglio and bill Hader. 6.9 out of 10 on IMDb, 68% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, a budget of an estimated $27 million with a box office gross of $87.3 million. The word fuck was said approximately 180 times in this movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, it is time for us to talk about none other than Pineapple Express. So fire up your bongs. Get your beanbag chairs ready. Let's talk about it. Lazy court processes. Uh, pros- <laughs> Words are hard. Sip a rum for the working man. Lazy court process clerk and stoner Dale Denton has only one reason to visit his equally lazy dealer, Saul Silver, to purchase weed. Specifically, in this case, a rare new strain called Pineapple Express. But when Dale becomes the only witness to a murder by a crooked cop and the city's most dangerous drug lord, he panics and dumps his roach of Pineapple Express at the scene of the crime. Dale now has another reason to visit Saul, to find out if the weed is so rare that it can be traced back to him. And of course, it is. As Dale and Saul run for their lives, they quickly discover that they're not suffering from weed-fueled paranoia. Incredibly, the bad guys really are hot on their trail and trying to figure out the fastest way to kill them both. Strap in. Spark up. All aboard the Pineapple Express. 
<laughs> this is a movie that is eminently rewatchable to me. Um, there are certain things that I'm not a super fan of, but um, it's one of those movies that I, I could sit and watch it all the time. From the opening scene with Bill Hader um, smoking weed in the old propaganda film from the 50s or the 40s or whatever, um, all the way through to the end of the movie with them sitting at the diner discussing the events and being fucking buddies. Uh, because I love being at a diner with my buddies. Um, let's dive in and let's talk about this movie. We'll see what other kind of memories we can dredge up along the way. One hour, one minute into this episode. This has gone a lot longer than I thought. I'm glad about it. My favorite line of the movie. Um, this is really, really tough to pick. This is a movie with a lot of great one-liners. <clears throat> a lot of improv- improvisation from incredible comedians tends to uh, produce that. Um, my favorite line, uh, thug life is probably the one that I use the most. Um, in my everyday life, people don't always get what I'm talking about, but, um, thug life, thug life, you know, it's good. Uh, beyond that, there are a hundred lines, uh, beyond that, there are a hundred lines that could be a favorite. There's, there's so fucking many of them. Um, I used to use the little gun when I was a prostitute. That's a f- phenomenal one. Um, blah, 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 blah. My second favorite civil engineer. I thought hurricane season was over on and on and on. It's amazing. I seen it. You could quote this movie for days. Pineapple Express, very quotable. Uh, favorite scene. Um, the first visit and the fight scene at Red's house is amazing. You've got gladiator quotes. You've got aerodynamics. You've got a second, uh, uh, second awkward drug dealer uh, encounter for Dale with bong mitzvah. You've got the escalating tension between Dale and Red. Red's kimono calling time out. Lots of hilarious little one-liners and asides and on and on and on and on and on. That is an amazing scene. My favorite scene in the movie is when Dale and Saul go to visit Red, Danny McBride, for the first time. The build-up to the fight, the fight itself, the whole fucking thing. Absolutely amazing. Um, Honorable mention in the favorite scene category goes to the opening scene with Bill Hader in the bunker testing item nine. You can't talk about this film without talking about item nine. Um, Favorite character. Tough. Very tough with a movie like this. Um, Danny McBride is a guy that, that just has my heart. I love Danny McBride. And as I say that, I realize that I may have to get a Danny McBride tattoo at some point, which is kind of nerve wracking. Um, so it's either going to be red or it's going to be, uh, Matheson played by Craig Robinson, who, uh, again, another guy that I just love, whether he's Doug Judy, whether he's playing himself and this is the end, whether he's here as Matheson, I love me some fucking Craig Robinson. Um, I have a particular soft spot for Craig Robinson and Danny McBride both. Um, They are a very, very particular style of side-busting hilarious, which is why I love them so much. So that's my favorite character, Red or Matheson. Diving into the facts that I pulled off of IMDb and thought were interesting enough to share with you, um, alternate casting. I always like to find out who could have been in different roles in the movie. Seth Rogen originally wrote the part of Saul Silver for himself to play. It wasn't until the table read that he realized that James Franco was way funnier in that role, and they switched. Um, Seth Rogen rolled every single joint and cross joint that you see in the film himself. He and Evan Goldberg sat down and rolled like 150 different joints for these scenes. Um, So they are definitely experts at the fucking craft. Um, I love a good fight scene. Who doesn't? Um, The fight scene between Saul, played by James Franco, and Carol, played by Rosie Perez, who I fell in love with in White Men Can't Jump, was, for the most part, improvised. That's a Captain's Film Institute theme, improvisation, and we're talking about it in a fight scene? 
Because of this, Franco was worried that he would hurt Perez and would ask for her permission to do certain things during the fight. In the end, Perez actually did get hurt, and she got a bruise after Franco allegedly bit her too hard on the thigh. But she didn't tell him until after filming was done because she didn't want him to feel bad and hold back in the fights. Um, exactly as you would expect from the characters her, uh, she plays, apparently Rosie Perez is a fucking badass. Um, speaking of Rosie Perez, and totally counterintuitively, she convinced the director, David Gordon Green, to cut most of her dialogue out. She figured it would make her character's crooked side a little bit more effective and ultimately more mysterious if she didn't talk a whole fucking lot. Um, excuse me. James Franco's line, It Smells Like God's Vagina, was originally uh, improvised by Seth Rogen. In the moment, James Franco told him it wasn't that funny, and then in the very next take, he stole the line, which made it into the movie. <laughs> um, weirdly enough, James Franco is apparently also not a stoner. Never has been. Doesn't like weed, but he plays a great one on TV. Um, the diner scene near the end, of the end of the film was not in the script. It was improvised on the spot by the actors as a way to close out the film. Um, which, of course, you guys know me. You know the Captain's Film Institute. Improvisation makes me love a fucking scene 23% more by default. Uh, and a diner scene plus improvisation? Get the fuck out of here. That's my happy spot. The first marijuana-themed comedy to ever gross over $100 million worldwide? Pineapple Express. No big deal. Um, while filming the scene in which Saul runs into a tree, James Franco got a little bit overzealous and actually ran into the tree, which caused him to get uh, three stitches right there on set. Talk about method acting. <laughs> um, just going back to a little bit more alternate casting, Brian Cranston actually read for the role of Ted Jones, the drug lord. However, Judd Apatow, one of the producers, felt that Cranston wasn't quite evil or scary enough to convincingly portray a drug dealer. Which is, of course, ironic because Cranston later rose to prominence playing Walter White, a high school teacher turned methamphetamine drug dealer in Breaking Bad, which was released season number one in 2008 the very same year that this movie was released. Um, as he is handing Dale some guns, Red, played by Danny McBride, says, Ted Jones messed with the wrong melon farmers. This is a reference that only like super-duper movie nerds are going to get, and now you will too because I'm about to tell you. Um, this is a reference to the common network television practice of dubbing over swear words with less objectionable words. So unless you were kind of raised in the 90s or very early 2000s or prior... Um, you're not really going to get this because you're not watching movies on network TV like we used to. Um, uh, the practice was to dub over swear words with less objectionable words or with terms that have similar sound and length or syllables, even if the replacement words don't really make sense in the context of the movie. Melon Farmers is used most famously as the dub for motherfuckers in the network television version of the Die Hard film franchise, in which lead character John McClane's famous catchphrase, Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, becomes Yippee-ki-yay, melon farmer. <laughs> um, James Franco has stated in an interview with MTV News, and Judge Apatow later stated the same at a Comic-Con event, that they had considered making a movie sequel that would intersect the storylines of this movie, Pineapple Express, and Superbad from 2007. Unfortunately for people like me who are huge fans of both of these films and the people involved, 
This never materialized. Um, at one point, Dale asks, where should we go? And Saul answers, I don't know, hotel, motel, holiday inn? These words are, of course, part of a 1970s hip-hop song called Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. One of the first rap songs I ever heard, one I could still probably give you all of the words to without missing a beat. Um, and I bet you're the same. <laughs> the first time Dale visits Saul, he apologizes for coming up before being buzzed in. To which Saul replies, stuff your sorries in a sack, man. Which uh, is actually a quote from an episode of Seinfeld in 1989, where the characters disagree over whether or not the quote is a commonly used expression. Ironically, after the popular episode aired and was replayed over and over and over again in syndication, stuff your sorries in a sack actually did become a casually and commonly used expression, as seen here in Pineapple Express. Um, they, really, they really nailed a lot of sort of the little things. Excuse me for just one second here. Give me just one second. There we go. Um, they really nailed a lot of the little things in this movie. You know, the attention to detail, and those are the things I like to pay attention to in films, especially ones that I rewatch. From set dressing to wardrobe to the tiny little lines that sort of feel improvised that really make the characters feel like real people living in a real crazy situation. Um, I'm particularly fond of how many times somebody will be shot, seriously injured, or be around um, somebody who is shot or seriously injured, and the person who did it immediately says, ew, or gross, um, anytime there's gore. Like it's these little sort of realistic things that just, they just tickle me. They make me happy. Um, okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's it. That's all we got. That's the end of the fucking show. What do you think about that? One hour, 10 minutes, 38 seconds. Nonsense, the show, episode 313. It's been a little disjointed. Um, I don't know how I feel about it. I'd love to know how you feel about it. Write to me, beardandbones at gmail.com. B-E-A-R-D, the letter N, B-O-N-E-S at gmail.com. Nobody uses email anymore, but I'd love it if you wrote to me. Tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you don't. Um, write to me on patreon.com backslash nonsense the show. It's where you can throw me a couple dollars, support the show. Um, let me feel like I'm a professional radio broadcaster, huh? It'd be fucking great. Otherwise, hit me up on the Instagram. Tell me what you liked. Tell me what you didn't. Um, Remind me about the fucking, uh, uh, about the little hiccup in that song, and I'll send you a couple bucks on the Venmo. Otherwise, listen, that's all I fucking got for you, y'all. Nonsense, the show, episode 313. My name is Captain Nick. Thank you so much. I'll have the other one, the next episode coming real soon. Um, if you got ideas, you got job opportunities, you want to send me some money, I don't know. Love you, bye. Goodbye. And just because it was mentioned, you know we're going to do fucking Rapper's Delight, and you know I'm going to sing along to the whole thing, but you're not going to hear it because I don't have the microphone muted, but you should sing along to it too. All right, because you asked, I'll give you a taste, all right? You ready for it? Here we go. Sing along if you know the words. I'm going to turn my microphone down a little bit because y'all don't need to hear a lot of this. Here we go.
hops and a hip hop, the hip, the hip, the hip, hip hop, hop you don't, don't stop. stop. Rock it out, baby, bubble to the boogie, the bang bang, the boogie to the beat. I already lost it. I already lost it. Enjoy. Love you guys. Bye. I'm rapping to the beat, and me, the groove, and my friends are gonna try to move your feet. You see, I am Wonder Mike, and I like to say hello. Up to the black, to the white, the red and the brown, the purple and yellow. But first, I gotta bang bang the boogie to the boogie. Say up, jump the boogie to the bang bang boogie. Let's rock. You don't stop. Rock the rhythm that'll make your body rock. Well, so far you've heard my voice, but I brought two friends along. And next on the mic is my man Hank. Come on, Hank, sing that song. Check it out. When I'm imp the dimp, the ladies pimp, the women fight for my delight. But I'm the grand master with the three MCs that shop the house for the young ladies. And when you come inside into the front, you do the freak bank and do the bump. And when the sucker MCs try to prove a point with Trenton's trio, I win the serious joint. From sun to sun and from day to day, I sit down and write a brand new rhyme. Because they say that miracles never cease. I've created a devastating masterpiece. I'm gonna rock the mic so you can't resist everybody. I say it goes like this when I was coming home. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, nonsense to show. This is the closing fucking segment. And for some reason, my Spotify is getting a little wonky. I don't think you guys that came through the way it should. So we're going to ignore Rapper's Delight. And as a super double secret bonus song for those of you that stuck around, um, let's go ahead and give you. Uh, oh, here you go. This is one you're going to love. I don't know. I should just fucking re-record this, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let you guys listen to it. So if you hear this, tag me in something. Hashtag what the fuck. This is How Bizarre by OMC. Because I'm in the 90s pop lately. Have fun. Love you. Bye. Brother Pele's in the back. Sweet singers in the front. Cruising down the freeway in the hot, hot sun. Suddenly red blue lights flash us from behind. Loud voice booming, please step out onto the line. Belly bridge words of comfort, Sino just hides her eyes. Policeman taps the shades, is that a Chevy 69? How bizarre. How bizarre, how bizarre. Destination unknown as we're pulling for some gas. Officially placed the poster, reveals a smile from the back. Elephants and acrobats, lion snakes, monkey. Bella speaks righteous, Sister Cena says funky. How bizarre. How bizarre, how bizarre. Stuck around TV news and cameras There's choppers in the sky Marines, police, reporters Ask where, for and why Bella yells, we're out of here Cena says, right on Making moves and starting grooves Before they knew we were gone Jumped into the Chevy Headed for big lights Wanna know the rest, hey By the rights, how bizarre How bizarre, how bizarre Ooh, baby, ooh, baby It's making me crazy It's me
Every time I look around Every time I look around It's a mile